Just a quick update before today's show. For the past 10 months, we've been working on our biggest project to date, the Holistic Psychotherapy Summit. This is a free online event which aims to provide mental health professionals with the most essential ideas for practicing effective psychotherapy in the coming decade. It will cover mind, brain, body, and spiritual approaches to healing. It features exclusive interviews with 30 of the world's leading clinical psychologists, professors, and psychotherapists, giving you insights into their best practices and frameworks they use with their clients. You'll be learning directly from the likes of Stephen Porges, Dan Siegel, Janina Fisher, Paul Gilbert, Pat Ogden, Stephen Hayes, Lisa Feldman Barrett, Richard Schwartz, Mick Cooper, and 29 others. The best bit is, it's completely free to attend live, and you can register today by going to bit.ly forward slash pod hyphen summit. That's bit.ly forward slash pod hyphen summit. Making money is a consequence of being good at your job. Surely it's not why you do the job. The two most important days of your life are the day you're born and then the day you discover why you were born. In this interview, I'm joined by Dr. Alan Watkins. Alan is the CEO of Complete, a leadership development consultancy that specializes in developing exceptional leaders, the author of eight books, and a five-time TED speaker whose talks have more than seven million views. In this lively and wide-ranging discussion, we explore why Alan transitioned out of his career as a medical doctor into executive coaching, why the reduction of human suffering can provide a meaningful trajectory to build your working life around, the four characteristics to look for in mentors, the work of Joseph Campbell and how having a meta frame around the change process can help you navigate the major transitions in life, and more. You can learn more about Alan's work by going to www.complete-coherence.com. Alan, welcome to the show. For anybody that isn't aware of you, aware of you, your work and your background, could you maybe tell us a, a bit about the work that you do? And I'm also curious to ask about your decision. I think it was around 25 years ago to to leave medicine to work on what you're currently working on. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, originally, I was a medical doctor for 12 years, so I worked in the um, NHS in the UK, but also worked in the medical system in the states and Australia. Um, and then about 25 years ago, as you said, left that to do what I'm doing now. So I've been doing what I'm doing now twice as long as I was doctoring. And the connection is the reduction of human suffering. So when I was a doctor, you know, uh, um, I was helping you know, physical suffering. Um, but I found that I couldn't reach enough people because when I was a consultant on the ward, you have 50 patients on the ward and 150 outpatients. You only have 200 lives to work with. Um, even if you're a GP, and I was a GP on the Barrier Reef for a while, um, you have 2,000 patients, but you don't see 1,800 of them because they're healthy, so you never get past 200. And so for me personally, I, I wanted to operate at scale, re- reducing human suffering at scale. And so um, a, a moment came where I thought, well, actually, if I leave and work with companies, you know, big multinationals, some of our clients have 400,000 employees. So if we improve the quality of leadership at the top of those companies, that potentially affects 400,000 lives. If you take the family of the employee base, that's 2 million people. If you take the supply chain, 
that's 10 million people from one company and we work with 100 companies. So you're operating at scale. Now it's a different sort of suffering, but it is suffering nevertheless. So when you have poor leadership, poor leadership causes problems as we've seen only too well in the UK in the last week with the resignation of the prime minister. When you have poor leadership, it causes problems. It causes suffering. So we now work with all these uh, multinational corporations to try and improve the quality of leadership because it's not just bad in politics the world over. It's also not at the level it needs to be within the corporate sector. 100%. That's really interesting. So it seems that your core driver then is the reduction of human suffering at scale. Um, Now, I think for maybe even a young person listening to this, you know, there's a lot of things that you could spend your time and energy and your life doing, um, but you've arrived at this very specific sort of aim, I suppose. And I'm just curious about the philosophy underneath it. You know, how did you arrive at this at this understanding that this was worth spending your time and energy on because we've all got a finite amount of time. So why this? Really good question now. Appreciate the quality question. Um, You do critical path analysis. like So when you look at big complicated systems, whether it's, you know, the NHS is a big complex system, society as a whole, uh, and you have the challenge that you have is you could focus on a lot of things, but what is the one thing that would make the biggest difference? So I'm kind of obsessed by that. And I, when I was a doctor, I used to ask myself the same question. If you could only teach people one thing, what would it be? If you could only say one thing, if you could only intervene in one place. So it's kind of like complex system acupuncture. If you could only put the needle in one, in one place, what would you do? And so the thing that, in my opinion, would make the greatest difference is um, you have to get to the people uh, whose actions affect others on the largest scale. So uh, there was a very interesting study out a few years ago published by the New Scientist, looking at 60,000 multinational corporations. And those 60,000 companies are controlled by 147 other companies through share ownership and so on. So basically 147 companies pull the string of 60,000 companies. Um, Most of those 147 financial institutions, pension funds, private equity, venture capital, banks, all these kind of things. And if you think there are, there are roughly three power players in each of the 147, so net-net about 500 uh, men, and sadly it's men, not women, 500 men run the planet. So 500 men control the destiny of 7.5 billion people. So it's kind of like a metaphor, right? If we can get to the 500 and help them to wake up and grow up and become more compassionate and wiser, those 500 would make better decisions which affect the lives of all of us. So that's kind of metaphorically what my company now does. We try to get to the 500. Now, imagine you're in the office now with those one of those 500. Even if you got in their office, can you say something that helps? So dealing with uh, a lot of these people who are super bright, very smart, you know, very influential, uh, very powerful figures. But, you know, what are you going to do when you're in their office? Um, because these are the winners in society, you know, by most people's yardstick. Um, So why would they listen to you or I? So the first thing is to help them wake up to the fact that there's something going on other than what they think is going on. So then you're into, well, how do we help people wake up when they already believe 
you know, uh, as some CEOs have actually said to my face, you know, well, who are you? I think you'll find I'm the winner here. Have you seen the size of my bank balance, my yacht, my boat, my second, third, fourth home? Have you, you know, how big is your bank balance? Like that was the important thing, right? How big is your bank balance? Am I being a seller? And, and it's kind of like a bit of a pissing contest. You know, I think you'll find the winner. How dare you? And you go, oh, that's all very interesting. I've got this other question. And then you sort of, there's something called surpriseology. You know, you surprise them with a question they weren't expecting. And that literally stops them in their tracks. Uh, and so the first thing in, in talking to these 500, the, the metaphoric 500, is if you don't surprise them with something, if you don't disrupt the way that they think, then there is no change. So therefore, we built in the, in the business a range of assessment instruments, which is specifically designed as wake-up calls. So I'll give you a very specific example. I was in with a CEO of one of the biggest companies in the UK, who the first 10 minutes I was in his office, he told me what a genius he was for 10 minutes. I mean, there was this sort of wonderful hubristic tirade of, you know, uh, I'm marvelous, I'm brilliant, I'm this, I'm that. Uh, uh, uh. I mean, he's a household name, this, this person. Um, and this went on for 10 minutes, which looked rather dull, to be honest. But anyway, he went on for 10 minutes, including referring to himself in the third person, which is always worrying. Um, so he talked about himself for 10 minutes. And after he sort of ran out of steam, you know, eulogizing about himself, uh, I said, look, let's just assume, let's just assume that's correct. Let's assume that you are God's gift to retail. Let's just assume that's true. Um, if it is true, I've only really got one question. Because prior to seeing him, I tracked his biology during a normal working day. I put a heart monitor on him and got him to record his own biology. And I said, if it's really true, answer me this. Why is your biology at the third centile, i.e. 97% of my database of leaders like you have got better biology than you? So if you're such a genius, why have 97% of the database in, in, have got better biology than you? Why is that if you're a genius? And that stopped him in his tracks, and he didn't have an answer. So it was kind of a little bit of an ambush. Wow. Uh, and he had to re-evaluate the way that he thought about himself and his life and what he was doing, because clearly there was basically, you know, he's driving around metaphorically in a Ferrari at 90 miles an hour, and I'd come with a message, you're just about to run out of petrol, mate. And he hadn't noticed. So it literally stopped him in his tracks. So, you know, what are we doing here? We're, first of all, you, if you, you can't help people grow up if they don't wake up first. If they don't wake up to the fact that they might be millionaires and billionaires, and I've coached many of those, but they're causing a big problem to many other people in society, and they're really insulated from that. They don't see the consequences of their own actions. Um, and so if you can, and, and some of them don't care, to be honest, um, but if you can help them see the consequences of their own actions on themselves, then you're having a more interesting conversation about what's really going on um, and can we help them see the world differently. So it's really wake up and grow up. That's so interesting. I never heard that before. Surpriseology. Um, I like it though. Um, so we're talking, we've spoke here about, you know, I suppose your purpose. And I think maybe a big part of this work, I might be wrong here, but maybe a big part of this work is helping these these the 500 leaders or that that you want to work with um get in touch with a really sort of values aligned purpose and i'm just curious about how you go about for someone for someone that you know 
isn't in touch with that and they're just in the in the game of making money and they don't really they're not really connected to that how do you help them connect to their purpose and i want to ask as well you know is this is this more of a a process of uncovering or is it something you're creating what would you out of the two options is the answer that you uncover a purpose so well, of course, when we're coaching CEOs and, and, and leaders, it, one of the most entertaining questions is to, let's, let's call this leader Frank, right? Okay, Frank. Um, so tell me, what is the point of view? Now, that's a good, that's a very interesting question. Quite provocative, right? What, what, is the, what do you mean, what's the point of view? Like, well, why, Frank, why do you exist on the planet? And it's quite a provocative question. Most people have no answer to that. Most CEOs don't know the answer to that question. So again, surprise, obviously, it puts them on the back foot. And so, you know, they're trained to give an answer, even if they don't know the answer, because very few of these people could admit they don't know. Um, it doesn't sit well with their own ego to admit they don't know the answer to a question, a simple question. Uh, so they blurt out, well, I'm a businessman, I'm here to make money. I go, no, no, no. Making money is a consequence of being good at your job. Surely it's not why you do the job. So you disallow the money as an answer. You know, and the truth is they don't do it for the money. I mean, these guys are very, very well paid, but they're not doing it for the money. So once you point this out and you go, okay, uh, oh, oh, right, yeah, you're right. I don't, I don't really do it for the money. Um, why do I, why do I do it? Why, what? I said, come on, Frank, what's the point of you? Why do you exist? And they go, oh, and in desperation, they blurt out the family answer. Oh, to be a good husband, you know, wife, partner, mother, father, brother, sister, whatever it is, the family answer, right? And I go, no, no, that's the point of men and women. That's not the point of Frank. What is the point of Frank? And then they're really floundering, having disallowed money and disallowed family as the answer. You know, some of them get uh, amusing and go, ah, oh, it's procreation. I said, no, that's the point of a species to procreate itself. That's not the point of Frank. Most people don't know. So again, it's surpriseology. You're taking them out of their comfort zone and challenging their view of their reality and asking them a question they simply can't answer. Because if you're going to help somebody develop, development requires uncertainty, uh, which is interesting. Leadership often requires you to project certainty. I know what we're doing. We're going over there. Leadership, right? Development requires you to be on the back foot and go, oh, hang on, what's going on here? So in a way, leadership development is a bit oxymoronic, right? Because leadership requires certainty, development requires uncertainty. So leadership development requires both certainty and uncertainty at the same time. So that's quite interesting. So you're opening them up basically to a conversation. uh, And so once they realize they don't really know why they're doing any of it, and most of them don't, then there's a very interesting and very rich and very moving conversation as you help them uncover why they exist. And I've had, men, I've had grown men reduced to tears just being so moved. And there's a lovely phrase, which are the two most important days of your life, are the day you're born and then the day you discover why you were born. And most people don't know. So it's a really lovely conversation to have. It requires a lot of very skillful uh, guidance uh, as a coach to be able to uncover somebody's core operating principle or their purpose, their why. Um, so that's a great conversation to have with leaders. Fantastic. Okay, so you're obviously making a, a huge impact in in the world through the work that you're doing, Alan. And 
I'm just curious to ask if you've ever thought about this, but what beliefs do you cultivate or have you cultivated that have enabled that? Or if somebody that would like to make a big contribution in the world, what are the important beliefs that they need to have in order to move forward? Because yeah, for, for me, that seems like it's an important thing to, to, to keep in mind. Well, it's less about belief now and more about understanding. Um, so one of the things that, that two things I'll share with you that, that it's really critical for leaders to understand is they're not one dimensional. Now, many leaders have become human doings, right? So let me explain that. It means when you ask leaders, well, what are you paying attention to? What, what, what's on your plate? They'll give you a long list of commercial challenges. You know, we've got to you know, cut the cost. We've got to manage um, you know, the product. We've got to innovate the solution. You know, we've got to have a competitive radar. We've got performance management systems. You know, we've got recruitment and retention problem. They'll give you a long list of stuff they're dealing with and stuff they've got to do and all the metrics around that top line, bottom line, EBITDA and the whole kind of shebang. Um, and I've got to do this. And a lot of it's very short term doing. Mm. Uh, some of the better ones think about the medium to long term doing, you know, the vision, the ambition, the purpose, the strategy, all of that stuff. But both of those dimensions, whether it's short term doing or long term doing, could be described as it. The world of it. What is it that you're doing? And most leaders are it addicted. So they're constantly snorting the lines of it, as I put it, point, put it out to them. And so when you're running events, like I was in Barcelona this week uh, with a big French company, um, as soon as you have a coffee break, immediately people pick up their phone and snort three more lines of it as they get off five more emails in the coffee break, you know. And it's because they're addicted to doing. And they say, well, look, actually, this is just one dimension of your life. Uh, we all have to do things. But it's not the only thing, because while you're doing things, you're relating to the people around you. Now, relating is very different to doing. So there are a totally different set of phenomena in the interpersonal space, as opposed to the rational, observable, objective space. You've got an interpersonal space. So as I was pointing out to the French company, there's some unwritten cultural rules in, in the 60 of you in this, in this uh, event you know, you all know what is the appropriate amount of alcohol that you should or shouldn't drink tonight. Now, nobody's put that down on a piece of paper, but you kind of know. And what's the appropriate level of humour? You all kind of know that. It's a cultural norm. It's not visible. You can't see it. And nobody's written it down. But you all kind of know roughly where the line is. Um, and so how you relate to each other is a different set of phenomena. Things like trust. You know, uh, I've much spoken about topic, you know, given the political situation in the UK in the last week. Trust is an interpersonal thing. It's not a rational, observable thing. So that's the world of we, if you like, the world of relationships. And then there's a third dimension, which is the interior of the individual. All your thoughts, your feelings, your beliefs, your values, you know, your level of honesty, your level of virtue, your morality, your uh, ego, your consciousness. These are all interior phenomena, which are also not observable. That's the world of I. So one of the understandings is we're multidimensional. There are three domains, I, we, and it. And these three domains exist in every moment of your life. So what are you and I doing right now, Niall? We're, we're having a conversation. And as we're chatting to each other, you're thinking about what I'm saying, and I'm thinking about what you're saying. So that's your eye and my eye while we're doing this podcast. And of course, we're getting on with each other. So there's a relationship building between it. So even in this moment of this podcast, we're doing the podcast 
We're relating to each other and we're both having thoughts and feelings. That's the I, the we and the it of this moment. So we have to understand that if you really want to create sustainable change, sustainable change only comes about through having an answer in all three dimensions. And the trouble with most leaders is they've got an answer in the it dimension, but nothing on the I and the we, or very little on the I and the we. So if we have any hope, uh, so to some of your people might be listening to this, sustainability is delivered through I and we. So last November, I gave a, 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 my fifth TED talk around uh, um, the week after COP26 about everything they didn't tell you at COP26. And the main thrust was most of the speeches and the conference and the debates were about the it of climate change. You know, what's the carbon capture storage technology? What are the solar panels, the wind, blah, blah. But what they didn't talk about was the relationship of the lack of collaborative spirit amongst all the uh, Paris Accord participants and how it's eroded and people have signed up to the one and a half degrees, but everybody was reneged on the promise. Why? Because we're not holding each other to account. Why not? Because there's something going wrong in the collaboration, but there was no talk about collaboration and how to improve collaboration. There was no talks in, uh, in, in, in Glasgow about that. And there was also no talks about the individual eye courage of individual people to take a stand. There were no talks about courage at COP26. There was no I debate, no we debate, it was all it debate. And therein lies the problem. So one of the things we have to understand is we're not human doings, we're human beings that relate to each other in the service of doing something. So that's a critical understanding. And then the second understanding is we have to develop in the I, we have to develop in the we, as well as develop in the it. So we talk about four-dimensional leadership, the three dimensions of I, we, and it. And the fourth dimension is how sophisticated is our I, how sophisticated is our we, and how sophisticated is the it. So that's the core premise here, is we will never solve the wicked problems we've created in society if we don't wake up to the fact that all problems are three-dimensional, not one-dimensional, and we actually need a four-dimensional approach. It reminds me of in some ways, Martin Buber's philosophy of I, I, it, and I, thou. Have you, are you aware of this? Uh, well, you I, it, right? But then you've got a thou will be more the we, right? Yeah. So if you look at the great leadership speeches, and there are books where you can buy, you know, what makes a great leadership speech? And in fact, I asked in Barcelona this week, you know, think of all the great leadership speeches in history, which one comes top? And everybody, this happens, by the way, even in China, because I've asked this question in China, Martin Luther King, the dream speech right? Always comes top of this, even in China, which is kind of slightly weird. But if you deconstruct that speech, what he said was, I have a dream. He didn't say, Niall, you have a dream. He doesn't say, there is a dream. He says, I have a dream. So he starts with I, but we Americans are going to do this. I, we, it. So that's what great leadership is. It's three-dimensional. In fact, it's four-dimensional. It's the sophistication of the eye. And the other question I ask them is, who's the most influential leader? So you might I'll ask you this now. Who do you think comes top of the list, the most influential leader, alive or dead, anywhere in the world in the last 100 years? Who do you think comes top of the list? The first name pops in my mind is Mandela. Exactly. He always comes top of even in China. Now, very interesting, if you look at the, the example of Mandela's life, there was no it for 26 years. He couldn't do anything. He was locked in a cell. So for 26 years, there was no doing. 
And there was very little relating. A couple of dull guards, one or two other inmates, couldn't relate to anybody for 26 years. So he spent 26 years cultivating his eye. So when he was finally released and he could actually do something so powerful, so sophisticated, so mature, so developed was his eye that he had an amazing effect, not just on South Africa, but Africa and the rest of the world. And now he comes top of your list and he comes top of everybody's list. And it's not by chance he developed his eye for 26 years. We're doing an event next month on non-dual consciousness. And the metaphor that that I've I've been doing a bit of research on is the metaphor that the people use to describe this is that it's like it's like going to the cinema and whenever you're identified with it or the content of experience, it's like being wrapped up in the in the characters in the in the screen, like what's actually happening uh, on the cinema. Whereas whenever you're in the in the eye, you're essentially identified with the screen. You're essentially the thing that isn't you're you're with the thing that's never changing. You know that screen's going to play a million different movies on it, um, but the screen itself, in essence is always there. It's always kind of witnessing the comings and goings of, of the changing experience. Does that, does that make sense? Um, well, I think it's, I don't think it's the necessarily the best metaphor, but let's talk about the witness since you mentioned it, right? Um, up until 300 years ago, uh, the ability, that witness experience was seen to be the ultimate state of consciousness, right? Um, so, the ability to witness. So you go through various experiences and eventually you have, um, you know, a, a sort of a oneness. So depending on which context you experience this spiritual oneness, you know, if you experience it on the golf course where you're at one with the ball, mm. right? You get obsessed by golf because you have this amazing oneness moment. I'm at one with the ball. You become obsessed by golf. You play every day. Or you have it in church, and people in church, when they have this oneness, this union with God, they think they've seen the face of God, and they go to church every day. Or you have it, you know, when you're, uh, you know, walking through the Grand Canyon or in the helicopter ride, or you're in the forest, the redwood forest, and suddenly Niall disappears, and he's at one with the forest. Then you become obsessed with ecology. So you misattribute the oneness experience with the context, Mm. uh, which is very common. So this oneness experience was thought to be the ultimate state of consciousness. It's really level eight consciousness. By the way, most people are operating at level three or four at best, but this is a level eight experience. Now, up until 300 years ago, you know, that was considered nirvana, right? And then somebody noticed that there was an observer and an observation. So your screen idea, right, is there was an observer observing the screen. So it can't really be oneness because there's an observer and an observed. So there's actually a dual uh, duality, right? There's an observer and observed. That's not real oneness. There's a separation between the observation and the observer. Now, that didn't appear anywhere in the world until 300 years ago. Um, And so the non-dual that you talk about was the emergence of level nine and level 10. And in level nine, the observer disappears. There is no Nile. There is just the experience. Now, you have to experience non-dual to even make sense of what non-dual really is. Um, you can't, you and I describing it in a podcast, you know, people will probably go, what are these two on about? Are they smoking something? 
Um, but you have to experience it. You experience it, it starts to make sense. But to describe it is to create the separation immediately because you're doing an observation of the experience, right? So non-dual consciousness is really level 10, uh, but you go through level nine to get to level 10. And that's essentially what non-dual is and your conference, I presume, will be talking all about that. That's very well said. Um, okay, so in a previous conversation, we talked about um, the term mental health and how this might actually be a misnomer. Um, I'm curious to ask, if you can maybe tell us a bit more about that, Alan. So this is, as a doctor, this, you know, this has bugged me for a number of years. If you look at most people who are suffering what is called mental health, uh, you know, they're wrought by anxiety or overwhelm or stress or, you know, uh, depression or something, they have a mental health problem. The mental cognitive processes in most of those people are normal. There is nothing wrong with mentation you know, cognition, mentation, M-E-N-T-A-T, mentation. Cognition is an easier word to understand. There's nothing wrong with cognition. Most people who are depressed, their cognitive processes are normal. Most people are stressed, their cognitive processes are normal. So why are we calling it mental? It's not mental. There's nothing wrong with their mental processes. Their cognition is normal. So why do we call it mental? And it's because we don't understand how this human system works. So we collapse Everything below thinking gets collapsed into cognition. And that is a fundamental error because the pro problem is not mental. Um, and so calling it mental creates stigma, right? And there's evidence that suggests that the stigma of that label, mental, does more damage than the actual anxiety or depression or whatever, because I'm now stigmatized on this mental case. And that's unhelpful, right? And it's not even true. So, it, and it takes us down a path of we've got to do cognitive behavior therapy, right? Well, the problem isn't cognitive. The problem in most cases of mental, what's called mental health, is actually emotional. It's not mental. It's our inability to control our emotions. And so we get overwhelmed by anxiety or overwhelmed by depression or overwhelmed by... Why, why does that happen? because we've never been taught to regulate our emotions. So the issue really is emotional regulation and emotional uh, sovereignty. And we're never taught that at school. Uh, and so when life gets tough, these emotions arise and we can't control them and they overwhelm us. And then we misdiagnose that as a mental problem when it really isn't. And then we have to have anti-stigma campaigns with mental health practitioners trying to reduce the stigma. You know, even the royals get involved. And we're barking up the wrong tree, which is why the mental health data keeps getting worse, despite all best intentions. And the reason it's getting worse, uh, you know, is because we're barking up the wrong tree. This is not a mental problem. It's an emotional development issue. So once you realize the real problem is emotional development, then you're on the right track. Then we can actually start to solve this. It's helping people to develop the emotional skills to regulate how they feel when life doesn't go well. And, and it becomes a health issue. So I'm not saying that if you're depressed for years, you don't then get medical problems. Of course you do, but it's not per se a health issue. It's a development issue. I mean, pregnancy is not a health issue. It's a natural process. And so the natural process of emotional development, right, gets interrupted and people don't develop those skills and then we medicalize that lack of development because it's a health problem. So you see, it's not mental, it's not health. 
It's emotional development. Now, when we understand that, we have a solution. We can help people develop the skills that they really need. So skills, not pills, to uh, address the difficulties of life. That's so interesting. Um, so it, it kind of brings me well into the next question. So we recently interviewed um, a lady called Lisa Feldman Barrett, who does a lot of work. Oh, yeah, yeah, she's, she's, she's a mate, yeah. Um, yeah, and she one of the things she, she said was that the person that has two words for, like say they've got the words happy and sad versus a person that has maybe 50 different words for each of these things, the person with only two words is about 100 times more likely to become severely depressed than someone that has all these different these different yeah. words. So what I want to ask is, you know, could you maybe tell us about emotional literacy, what it is, why it's important, and how can someone develop develop emotional literacy? Maybe you could tell well, us about your app as well. Yes. Well, Lisa is one of the best scientists in the world in this area. And so Lisa and I have had lots of conversations about this. Um, and um, yeah, so when, we, when you ask um, anybody, write down what emotions you've noticed in the last week, and I'll give you five minutes, Niall, and you make a list. Um, and when, it's very entertaining to do this in a room full of people, you know, because when you, particularly executives, you know, executives start last right, write down how I felt in the last week. I felt frustrated, I felt annoyed, I felt irritated, I felt disappointed, I felt angry. Oh, shit, they're all negative. Um, uh, and they start to look at their neighbour, think, oh, I'm frustrated, no, I've got that one. Um, annoyed, no, I've got that one. And they look around, you give them long enough, um, they get about a dozen on average. And I say, well, how many do you think there are? Well, how, how, many, how many are, are there of what? How many emotions is it possible for a human being to experience? And they've got a dozen, and they go, I don't know, 50, 100, 34,000. 34, so we're illiterate, right? We're illiterate. I mean, well done, everybody. You got 10 out of 34,000. Marvellous. Right. So a complete and utter illiteracy. Now, Lisa said, you know, if you're illiterate, well, you're going to have problems then, aren't you? You know, you're going to get overwhelmed because um, if you can't tell, let's imagine you're really illiterate and you can't tell the difference. You've got two. You've got two emotions that you recognize in your own system, shit and not bad. There are only two, right, in your world. Uh, somebody, you bump into somebody and they feel despair. Right? But you don't recognize that because you've only got two, shit and not bad. And you look at them and you think, well, they don't look not bad. They must be shit. They don't feel shit. They feel despair. It's a different thing. So you can't really help them. You can't even empathize with them because you don't really know what planet they're on. So we built, uh, brought out an app. There's a free version of the app. It's called the Complete App. If you go onto you know, Google Play or the iStore and type in Complete Coherence, which is the name of our company, uh, you'll see a sort of blue background with a C on and you can download the free version. On the app, there's 2,400 emotions for you to start with. Now, that might be overwhelming, so just start, you know, start with 16. You can just go, let's see the universe of emotions in the most basic form, and start, and one of the things the app's meant to do in terms of not only just give you all the skills to be able to regulate your entire life, but to help you improve your emotional literacy, to get beyond just 10 emotions, and start to see that there's a whole world inside you of different emotional states. Um, and the more literate you become, the healthier and the more balanced you can become. And so, for example, let's take two negative emotions, uh, anger and anxiety. Right now, emotions are just energy in motion that are designed to drive a behavior of some sort. 
So anger is a, a set of physiological signals uh, taken together. It becomes an emotion which is designed to make you step forward and deal with the thing that's making you angry and resolve something. But anxiety is a different set of signals that is designed to stop you in your tracks and gather more data. It's like, oh, shit, I don't know what's going on. Oh, hang on a minute. So if you can't tell the difference between anger and anxiety, sometimes you will step forward when you should have stepped back, and sometimes you will step back when you should have stepped forward. Why? Because you're illiterate. You can't tell the difference. So you choose the wrong behavior, and then you get a negative outcome. So the point of becoming more emotionally literate is you make wiser decisions and wiser choices. Now I want to transition into talking about your new book, uh, Step Change, which is it's really interesting. I suppose it's uh, it provides a roadmap for leaders who are wanting to better navigate the change journey. And um, you know, first question I want to ask is for such an adaptable species that can you know survive in almost any climate on the planet, um, why are human beings so resistant to change? In your in your opinion? Yes, it's really fascinating that question. Fascinating that question, isn't it? is that we're, we're taught from a very early age that change is a bad thing. And when you do, certainly in, in, in business and in leadership circles, there's all sorts of phrases, steady as she goes, don't rock the boat, you know, let's maintain the status quo, no surprises, you know, the markets don't like a shock, you know, we've seen this week, Liz, uh, blessed, resigning, oh, it's a shock to the market, Nobody, you know, let's go you know, back to normal, you know, without all this turbulence, is we're trained from a very uh, early age to mistrust change, um, mainly because it frightens us and we're not in control of it. So we haven't got change competence or the ability to manage. We've got no change capability. Um, so that was one of many reasons I wrote the book about change, because we now live in a world that's changing so fast that inability not only to regulate our emotions, but our a lack of understanding about the phenomena of change is a problem in and of itself. We don't understand change. We don't know how change works. We don't have change competence. But we live in a world that's incredible, changing incredibly fast. So we've got to get good at change. You know, we, we can't not. If we want to flourish, let alone survive, we've got to get good at change. Now, fortunately, um, there's a genius who helps us here, you know, stood on the shoulders of giants, one of my great heroes is Joseph Campbell, who's the guy that inspired George Lucas to Star Wars. Uh, and Campbell was, uh, grew up in, the, in America in the, the late uh, uh, 1920s during the Great Depression. And for about five years, there was no work. Anybody, nobody had any work. But fortunately, he lived on a farm. So he read books for eight hours a day. Uh, so he was self-taught and he became the, the world authority on mythology because he taught himself to read Aramaic uh, and uh, middle century German. So he read the very first translation of the Bible into a European language in, in German. Uh, and he started to get very interested in the stories that cultures tell, uh, you know, that tell children, tell each other. And he studied these stories all over the world, you know, whether that was in China or India or in Germany or Latin America. And he discovered that there was a universal story, what he called the monomyth. Um, and it's that, or later became the hero's journey. So, and what he discovered is there's classic steps. There are 
what we've described in the step change book, 12 steps to change and four phases. And these 12 steps are true whether you're changing yourself, changing some aspect of a relationship, or changing what you're doing in business, or, or whatever you're doing, right? So whether it's an I, a we, or an it change, same 12 steps. So they become applicable to our entire life. So if I just run you very quickly, you know, step one, we're in comfort zone. There's no reason to change. Everything's wonderful. We're lying in a nice warm bath, metaphorically speaking. There's no reason to change. Hey, I'm winning. You know, the billionaire sits there with all his money and all of his yachts and houses. No reason to change. So he stays at step one. But if you're lucky, a disaster befalls you, right? So now when you have a disaster in your life now, you, it's painful, right? So you, every, every fiber of your body, you want to go back to the comfort zone. You want to go back to step one. You're in step two. You're in pain. You're in suffering. You're having a disaster. Um, and so most people's uh, response to the disaster is anesthetic. Drugs and alcohol. Let's get wasted tonight. Let's block my consciousness out with a load of alcohol or drugs so I don't have to think about the uselessness of my existence or the parlous state of the planet because I'm wasted, Right. Now, lots of young people do that. I did it myself when I was young. Um, but it didn't solve the problem. Because you wake up in the morning with a hangover and the problem's still there. So drugs and alcohol don't solve anything, really. I mean, they might block things out for a while because you're too unconscious to think about them, but it didn't solve the problem. So then we go into distraction strategies. Human beings are brilliant at distracting themselves from the real questions. So we get distracted with celebrities you know, or the inaneness of television reality shows or, you know, social media. We're addicts to the social media platform and our likes and all of that sort of dopamine hits. So we get addicted to social media or we get addicted to shopping, you know, retail therapy, or we get addicted, you know, to sex, you know, classic midlife crisis. Um, or we get addicted to the gym, you know, or in business, we become a workaholic. You know, because we get addicted to the work. And while we're really busy working, we don't have to think about the pointlessness of existence or the fact that I don't really know what I'm doing or why I'm doing it. I don't understand, I don't understand my own purpose. All of the big questions, we distract ourselves from them with shopping or, re, you know, all these things. But none of those distractions solve the problem because, you know, uh, they can't. And so that's step two. And all the people live their entire life in the pain of step two, living a miserable existence because they think there's no answers. There are answers, but they don't realize they're stuck in the pain. Um, and when uh, uh, somebody turns up to help you, you get to step three, where you even resist the helper, whether that's a coach, a guide, or a mentor. So this is when Obi-Wan Kenobi turns up to help Luke Skywalker. This is when Nero turns up to help Neo in the Matrix. Um, you know, this is when Gandalf turns up to help the, you know, Bilbo Baggins to go on a journey or Frodo to go on a journey, um, you know, or this is when, um, uh, you know, Dorothy goes to Kansas. So if you look at all these great movies, um, whether it's Star Wars, you know, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, you know, when he gets a letter to take him to Hogwarts, naturally you resist. So step three is resistance. Right? Or what Campbell called uh, the refusal of the call, the call to adventure. Because it doesn't feel like an adventure. You know, it feels like a load of pain. And so we resist change. So that's step three. But eventually, if you start to trust the guide or you start to realize that your resistance is futile because it's not solving the problem, you get to step four where the resistance has subsided. And then you get to step five where you've got a decision to make. 
you've got to cross a threshold. So that's in uh, The Hobbit, you leave the Shire, you know, or most probably beautifully depicted in that Nero, uh, sorry, Neo, the red pill or the blue pill. Do you want to take the blue pill and you'll forget we ever had this conversation? Or do you want to take the red pill and we tumble down the rabbit hole and see how far this journey really goes? And of course, Neo takes the red pill. So that's beautifully depicted. In, in Star Wars, it's the cantina, you know, this weird world that he's in, he's crossed the threshold. So all these great movies are following the same 12 steps. So once you've crossed the threshold, and that's basically making the decision to change, that happens at step five. There's still no change happened yet. You get to step six. So once you've decided, and it's an internal decision in your heart to make the change, you've then got to prepare for the journey ahead. So it's like, I've decided to climb Mount Everest, but I haven't bought any equipment yet. Step six, preparation. Preparation for the journey ahead. And those, you need either internal resources, courage, for example, or external resources, you know, uh, ice picks and, you know, a backpack or whatever it is, right? That's step six, preparation. And then step seven is when the work starts. So one of the reasons that people and, and change management programs fail is there are six steps before the change even starts. So we think we're changing, but we're stuck in step three or step four, and we haven't really got to step seven. Step seven is where the work is, the trials and tribulations. And most of the great movies, most of the film is about step seven, you know, because that's when the jeopardy is, the trials and tribulations. You know, that's when the hero fights things and, you know, the, the monsters and so on. And then if the work works, right, which it doesn't, I mean, many people get stuck, step, stuck at step seven forever, you know, they're going on another retreat. You know, this is their 15th time to the Stone Mountains and the ayahuasca experience, right? I mean, I've seen many people who've been doing the meditation retreat every year for the last 20 years, and they're still assholes, right? So you think, well, the work's not worked. You know, they're stood in the coffee queue and they're chewing out their wife. And you're thinking, well, you've been meditating allegedly for 20 years and you're still being an arse to your wife. It's not working, is it? I mean, I've seen this many, many times, right? If the work is good and you're well-guided, the work will change you. And that's the point. And then you go to step eight, the deep work. Because step eight is, well, why did you need to do the work in the first place? What was wrong with you that you needed to do something and you've got to do the deep work, which in the films is something that Joseph Campbell called going in the innermost cave, where you fear to tread. You know, So you've got to go into the cave, you've got to get past the cave troll, and you've got to slay the dragon, uh, which in Lord of the Rings is Smaug, right? You've got to slay the dragon. And the dragon's a metaphor. The dragon you're trying to slay is you. It's the earlier version of you. Or if you saw in the sort of Elton John biopic, there was a lovely moment where, um, you know, he was in his early career, he was told that he'd got to kill the earlier version of Elton to become the version he wanted to be. That's the slaying of the dragon. In order to find the treasure, and the treasure you seek is also you but it's the version 2.0 of Nile. That's the treasure you're really in pursuit of, that bigger, more expanded version of you. So if you do the work, it, it changes you. It changes you permanently, not just temporarily, I'm a bit better today or this week. Permanent change, permanent improvement, permanent evolution. And then you do the deep work and you really understand what this is about. And then step nine is the stabilization of all that, the embodiment of that change. And once you've embodied it, 
Step 10 is you return. It's the return. It's the going back to the natural world, uh, which for many executives is just Monday morning. Right? You go back to work. And then if you've truly changed yourself, step 11, you're able to deliver at a whole new level. And then step 12, you will inspire yourself and others to another revolution. So those are the 12 steps. Wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> there's so much in there. Um, and that's broken down, I suppose, into the four phases. Um, discover, decide, develop, and deliver. Or, or put it another way, wake up, own up, grow up, and show up. That's it. That's the journey. Uh, how would you say, you know, a big part of this is that there are certain characters that kind of show up um, during this this journey, how can someone recognize those characters whenever they do show up? You know, the, the guide, for example, um, these archetypal characters, how can someone recognize them? And what are all the different characters that, that can show up on the journey? Well, there are many, many characters that show up. Uh, the most important is the guide. But what's very interesting, and I've written about this, is in working with organizations, um, organizations are not skillful at understanding th these types of journeys. So when we as a company, when Complete turns up to talk to organizations, um, they can't tell the difference between the quality of what we do uh, and the quality of what other people do. So it's about, imagine two people turn up um, and one of them turns up, uh, say, yeah, we'll, we'll coach, um, you know, Rangers or Celtic or, you know, you know your team, whoever it is, um, and it turns out we're Pep Guardiola. But you don't know that, and you can't tell the difference between us and the guy from the pub. And that's the problem with most organisations, is the guide turns up. But how do you tell a good guide? How do you recognise if that person turns up can actually help you? Right? Most organisations can't. So we're constantly going into organizations and we're up against other competitors who we know, uh, another metaphor would be, you know, my friend Heston Blumenthal, you know, turns up to cook you your meal. and He's a three-star Michelin chef. But another person turns up who's basically a burger flipper. And the person who's buying the service can't tell the difference between Heston Blumenthal and a burger flipper. Now, you can imagine that's quite annoying if you're Heston Blumenthal, right? Or it's quite annoying if you are a guide that can actually help but the person who's making the decision can't tell the difference. So there are, there are four things that you should look for. Like, can this person actually help me? Right? So these are the sort of four A's, if you like. Number one, aptitude or skill. So what skill sets does this person have? What qualifications, what degrees, what levels of understanding? How many different models or theories or areas of knowledge are they skillful at or they've got competency in? what is their aptitude yeah so that's one thing to look for then there's scale or um uh, amplitude right so can this uh, guide work at an individual level can they work at a team level can they work at a conference level can they work at a whole organizational level can they work in the uk and other countries can they work in corporations, in charities, in education, in sport? Can they work with old people and young people? Can they work with senior people and shop floor people? What's the amplitude? What's the scale of their capability? 
Can they work with all sorts of types and shapes and sizes of people, you know, singly, collectively? And if they can, they've got amplitude, right? And then attitude or, you know, social skills, if you will. So you might go technical skills, uh, scale, social skills or social intelligence. So what is their attitude? And the quick way of, you know, are they, are they sort of somebody you'd go to the pub with? I mean, are they interesting people you'd like to spend time with? Do they have the social skills? Now, sadly, that's the one that's often used as the only measure. You know, this person turns up, they were warm and friendly. Right, we'll have you. And they haven't got the other three A's. So it's just chosen on friendliness, right? And they've got no technical capability. So they haven't got the uh, aptitude. Uh, they can't play at scale. Um, and, and they haven't got the fourth one either. But hey, they're personable, so uh, you've got the job. Um, so watch out for that one. That's the one that's mistakenly prioritizes the most important and forget the rest. That's the least important. It obviously needs to be, you know, you want to spend time with people, you know, um, you don't want to waste your time. There's got to be a certain level of that, but that's the least of the four important. The most important is the last one, which is altitude or sophistication if you're using four S's. So it's four A's or four S's, whichever frame you want. So uh, altitude is what is the depth of the person that you're talking to? Like how mature and sophisticated is this person? You know, are they three-star Michelin chef or are they a burger flipper? And can you tell the difference? So that's the real killer uh, piece. So it's aptitude, it's amplitude, it's attitude and it's altitude. So those are your four A's, or if you want to think of it as four S's, it's skill, it's scale, it's social intelligence, and it's sophistication. Those are your four guides to know if the person in front of you can really help. That's fascinating. And I suppose for anybody that wants to be a leader and wants to be a guide for others, that's kind of a good compass to sort of four things you really want to cultivate in your own, your own life, you know? Um, so a big part the most important to cultivate the depth the altitude is the most important because you've got many people out there who've got very little out they're hubristic and they think they're awesome and they can really help and they don't have the humility um, to know what they know or know what they don't know and so they'll tell a great story but they don't really have the depth and of course uh, to help all of us we've seen it with our prime minister didn't have the sophistication didn't have the depth character the wisdom and the maturity so you know i mean the, the shortest serving prime minister in history was cruelly exposed sadly to to for her was cruelly exposed pretty quickly as being out of her depth and where, where does the depth come from then is it from doing difficult things you know is it how does someone develop depth well most people don't um you know sadly most people's development stops either at the age of about eight or at the age of about 14. Um, and you can measure it, by the way. I mean, and we do in our businesses, we'll often see 40 or 50-year-olds and we'll measure internally what is their level of sophistication and it, it's eight or 14. So something usually happens to us in our natural development, you know, in our journey of life where there's a sort of developmental delay. And after that, we continue getting older, but we don't necessarily mature. Um, and so one has to understand these processes of maturation. So um, most people uh, have seen children and see children go through stages of child development 
but there's an assumption you get to 18 and, hey, now I'm an adult, right? Now it's all done. The development's finished. That's just not true. In fact, most people who get to 18 haven't actually really got to 18. They've got to 18 on the outside, but on the inside, they're still eight or 14, right? Um, but when you get to 18, there are stages of adult development. And this has been written about by many researchers around the world. Uh, it's well understood. But most leaders have no idea about adult development and what are the stages of adult development and how do you unlock the next level? How do you, to use a gaming metaphor, how do you level up on your journey? How do you go from you know, being a 14-year-old at whatever age to being an actual adult? And how do you become a mature adult? And then how do you become a very mature adult? And what are these stages of adult development? Most people don't know. So it's actually getting curious about what is my level of sophistication and what, what's the next level? Is there a next level? So I'll tell you a fun story. I was with a load of private equity guys some while ago, uh, and this was quite <laughs> entertaining. Now, if you've met any guys, I don't know whether you have, and I've met any private equity people, but they're not shy. These are not shy types. These are red meat, meat eaters, you know, full of ambition and hubris. And so I spent uh, a few minutes with them, uh, talking to them about them, their favorite topic. Um, and I said, well, you're, you're private equity. I mean, you're kind of pretty good businessmen. Yeah, we're pretty good businessmen. And I said, well, actually, in many ways, you're kind of better than most other businessmen. Don't you buy and sell other businessmen for your look for a living? Yeah, that's what we do. We buy and sell other businesses. We buy and sell other business teams. That's what we do. I said, doesn't that make you better? Yes, it does make us better. We are the best. I said, you're like the 1% of the 1%. That's the cream of the cream. We're the cream of the cream. Anyway, I was sort of heating up their ego for a bit. It wasn't difficult. I was heating up their ego for about 10 minutes. And the room, there was about 60 of them, was getting more and more energized by how awesome they are. So you're the awesome ones. Yeah, we're the awesome ones. Really just getting high fives and chest bumps. And when they were, ah, yeah, finally people realize we're the awesome ones. I said, how awesome? We're really awesome. Yeah, but how awesome? Really awesome. I said, I'm going to give you a scale of how awesome you are. Noughts you've not started and 100 is you're the most awesome you're ever going to be in your entire life. What's your number? Now, what do you imagine they said? Uh, I'm going to say 95, 95. It was at that end. It was definitely at that end, right? Now, the slightly more perceptive started to get suspicious about what I was up to and went 90. (laughs) You know, I had 110 and 120. Like, oh, my God, that's how awesome I am, 120 out of 100. Um, And I'd written a number on the flip chart, which I then revealed. Nine. Zero nine. I said, that's your level. And then there was this wave of offense that went around the room. How dare you? We're We're the awesome ones. We're 95%. We're not 9%. How dare you? And I said, no, no, you're misunderstanding me. What I'm actually saying is I can get another 91% out of you. Are you honestly telling me there's nothing more to come? This tiny increment after now, today, there's nothing left in any of you? Is that what you're telling me? Of course, I laid this trap. Every one of them fell in. And so they went, oh, blimey, he's right. I can't say there's nothing more to come from me. I might as well go home. So they all fell in, right? And and the serious point about that entire story is what we're capable of of, as human beings is way beyond what we realize we're capable of. Way beyond. I mean, most people have barely scratched the surface of their own capability or their own potential. But we wander around our lives thinking, oh, little old me, I couldn't possibly change anything. I couldn't possibly have an impact. 
I couldn't possibly, you know, what can I do? Oh, all of that. In fact, there was a guy in Barcelona on Wednesday uh, and I was saying, well, imagine I can show you as a neuroscientist how to speed up your brain. Imagine I could show you how to make your brain go so fast, it goes four times faster than it's ever gone in your entire life. He just didn't think that was possible. He just completely refuted that hypothesis. That's absolutely not possible. I said, no, it is possible. It's interesting you think it isn't possible because it's already been shown to be possible. They did some research in the labs, the neuroscience labs of, of Wisconsin, where they looked at something called facial recognition, where they showed you a face of a person and said, okay, now, what's the expression of that face? You went, that's an angry face. Now, you'd have to see that face for 300 milliseconds. If I showed it to you for 295, it's subliminal. And then they tested some monks. And the monks could identify the face in 33 milliseconds. Literally 10 times faster than you. So the monks sat next to Joe Public, and the images was coming, the monks going angry, disappointed, sadness, confused, irritated, um, and so on. And Joe Public sat next to him going, what's the monk looking at? It's a blank screen, I can't see anything. What's going on? Couldn't see anything. And the monk's cranking out the answers 10 times faster. So that's what's possible for the human mind, which is why I'm eternally optimistic, because we've barely scratched the surface of our own capability. And if we can unlock those levels, and that's kind of what we're trying to do with leaders, is to help them become more compassionate and wiser individuals to make better decisions cause their suffering. If we can unlock those levels, then we have a very different future. I think that's a that's a great note to end on. And just this whole idea of realizing that you've so much more to give and that, you know, once you reach the end of the 12 steps in your in your change process, it's like you're going back to stage one again. You know, that should be the aim to go into that beginner's mind again, yes. you know. Um, so yeah, Alan, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for sharing some of your knowledge and wisdom with us. Um, where can people learn more about uh, Complete Coherence and find out more information about you online? Uh, well, I mean, just search me, Dr. Alan Watkins, online. Follow me on LinkedIn. Um, find our company. You know, we're here to help uh, uh, other organizations, other companies. Um, you know, we're very open, receptive. Email me, uh, message me, you know, through LinkedIn. Um, our website, complete-coherence.com. Um, I've written 10 books. The uh, 10th one comes out next month. The last one I wrote that came out earlier this year was the Step Change book. They're packed full of things. So even if you don't make contact with us, read some of the books. They're specifically designed to help people uh, you know, transform their own lives. So contrary to most business books where there's one idea spread thinly across 200 pages as at the other end there's almost 200 ideas a page you know there's lots of stuff in there that is designed to help you so even if you don't reach out to us read the books knowledge up become an activist change your life uh, and have a better tomorrow all right thank you very much Alan, and all the best okay cheers now